This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start off reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA. The first article from JTA, Are the Proud Boys Anti-Semitic? Your primer on the far-right group Trump told to stand back and stand by, by Ben Sales. Who are the Proud Boys, the far-right group that Donald Trump name-checked at the first presidential debate? And do they hate Jews? The answer to the second question, some of them, including their founder, certainly do. Let's back up. At the debate Tuesday night, moderator Chris Wallace asked Trump whether he would condemn white supremacists from the debate stage. He did not. What he did say amid denunciations of the far-left Antifa was this, Proud boys, stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem, this is a left-wing problem. The group Trump referred to, the Proud Boys, is a far-right Western chauvinist fraternal organization founded by Gavin McInnes that supports Trump and has engaged in street violence. Anti-Semitism is not core to the group's ideology, but according to the Anti-Defamation League, the group has allied with white supremacists, and McGinnis has made a series of anti-Semitic statements. The ADL estimates that it has several hundred members. A former member of the Proud Boys, Jason Kessler, was the primary organizer of the 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, which Joe Biden again criticized for its anti-Semitism during the debate Tuesday. Chapters of the Proud Boys have marched with neo-Nazis on other occasions as well. Just as members of the Boogaloo Bois, another far-right group frequently wearing Hawaiian shirts, the Proud Boys have adopted a specific quasi-uniform, in their case a black polo shirt with yellow trim produced by the British company Fred Perry. Late last week, the company announced that it would stop selling the shirts and issued a forceful statement reiterating its top executive's previous condemnation of the Proud Boys. Fred Perry, the Englishman who founded the company in 1952, started a business with a Jewish businessman from Eastern Europe. It's a shame we even have to answer questions like this. No, we don't support the ideals or the group that you speak of. It is counter to our beliefs and the people we work with, John Flynn, the company's chair, said in 2017, and again in the new statement. And in case anyone has doubts, the Proud Boys are a virulent strain of American right-wing extremism. ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt tweeted Tuesday night following the debate. They have a long track record of violence, including in Portland this past weekend. He wrote that Trump owes America an apology or an explanation now. McInnes made two videos surrounding a 2017 trip to Israel, including one originally titled 10 Things I Hate About Jews that contained an anti-Semitic rant. In that video, he said Jews have a whiny, paranoid fear of Nazis. I felt myself defending the super far-right Nazis just because I was sick of so much brainwashing and I felt like going. Well, they never said it didn't happen. What they're saying is that it was much less than six million and that they starved to death and they weren't gassed. 
that they didn't have supplies, he said in the second video before adding, I'm not saying it wasn't gassing. He also blamed Jews for Joseph Stalin's starvation of millions of Ukrainians. I think it was 10 million Ukrainians that were killed, he said. That was by Jews. That was by Marxist, Stalinist, left-wing commie, socialist Jews. And an update. Since the debate, members of the Proud Boys have printed the phrase stand back and stand by on t-shirts they are selling. Cassie Miller, a research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center, said Wednesday regarding the Proud Boys that Trump's recent statement at the debate is something that emboldened them, that thrilled them, and that will add some legitimacy to the group. Also Wednesday, Trump told reporters, I don't know who the Proud Boys are, and whoever they are, they need to stand down. And next from JTA, a Jewish senator blasts Republicans for burying a bill that would target domestic white supremacist terrorists. Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz, a Jewish Democrat, lambasted the Republican majority in the Senate for burying a bill that would expand capabilities targeting domestic white supremacist terrorists. Senate Republicans just blocked a unanimous vote on a resolution condemning white supremacy, Schatz said Thursday on Twitter. It passed the House unanimously. They said that after nine months of the legislation languishing that the committees of jurisdiction needed to look at it and consider their equities. The bill, originally introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives by Representative Brad Schneider, a Jewish Democrat from Illinois, authorized the creation of new offices and training within the Justice Department to tackle domestic terrorism. Senator Dick Durbin, an Illinois Democrat, sought to advance the bill by unanimous consent, but was blocked by uh, Senator Ron Johnson, a Wisconsin Republican who is close to President Donald Trump. The Anti-Defamation League, which backs the bill, decried the delay which could effectively kill the bill as this congressional session winds down. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act cannot wait, the ADL said in a tweet. It should be an uncontroversial priority to establish federal offices to address domestic terrorism and ensure federal employees are trained on the threat. We urge Senator Ron Johnson to immediately explain and to reconsider. In its preamble, the bill approved in a unanimous voice vote last month in the House cites a number of attacks carried out by white supremacists in recent years, including deadly assaults in synagogues in Pittsburgh and in Poway, California. The Trump administration has rolled back some tracking of white supremacists. Separately on Thursday, the House passed a bill that would track foreign white supremacist groups. The bill was introduced by Max Rose, a Jewish Democrat from New York. Researchers and experts have observed that the threat posed by violent white supremacist extremism is extre uh, increasingly transnational in nature, Rose said in a release. The legislation, which now goes to the Senate, requires a periodic Department of Homeland Security threat assessment. And next from JTA, Jewish conservative activists charged with illegal robocalls warning inner-city residents not to vote. Prosecutors in Michigan have charged two men, including the 22-year-old Jewish conservative activist Jacob Wall, with illegal attempts to dissuade residents in Detroit and other urban areas from voting by mail. 
Wall, whose Twitter feed describes him as conservative, Trump supporter, Zionist, and a 54-year-old pro-Republican lobbyist, Jack Berkman, were charged Thursday with four felony counts, each including conspiring to intimidate voters in violation of election law and using a computer to commit crimes, Attorney General Dana Nessel said. The robocalls falsely warned residents in majority black Detroit and urban areas in at least four other states that voting by mail in the November 3rd election could subject the voter to arrest, debt collection, and forced vaccination, the Associated Press quoted Nestle as saying. She said about 85,000 calls were believed to have been made across the nation. The defendants are not in custody and no date for their arraignments has been set. Wall and Berkman both denied involvement when questioned by police. Attempts by AP to contact them following the indictment did not succeed. The two have a history of supporting Donald Trump and attacking his political opponents. Michigan is a key battleground state that Trump narrowly won in 2006, in part amid a drop in turnout for Hillary Clinton in heavily Democratic Detroit. California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have made ethnic studies a requirement for graduation from high school in the state, saying the measure, as written, still needs revision. In August 2019, the California State Board of Education rejected the proposed curriculum, which the California Legislative Jewish Caucus effectively said effectively erases the American Jewish experience, omits anti-Semitism, denigrates Jews, and singles Israel out for condemnation. The new draft clearly identifies anti-Semitism as a form of bigotry and removes mention of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, according to the Los Angeles Times. Last month, 80 organizations, not all of them Jewish, signed a letter coordinated by the Amcha Initiative, which monitors 450 college campuses across the United States for anti-Semitism, calling on Newsom to veto the current legislation and recommend to state lawmakers to establish legislation in this California Education Code to ensure that state-approved instructional materials are free from partisan or political biases and that K-12 teachers are prohibited from using their classrooms for the purpose of one-sided partisan advocacy or activism. Newsom said Wednesday in a message accompanying the veto that the bill would require ethnic studies to be taught in high school at a time when there is much uncertainty about the appropriate K-12 model curriculum for ethnic studies. The message added, last year I expressed concern that the initial draft of the model curriculum was insufficiently balanced and inclusive and needed to be substantially amended. In my opinion, the latest draft, which is currently out for review, still needs revision. The bill would have required high schools to offer classes in ethnic studies beginning with the 2025-26 school year and made ethnic studies a graduation requirement by the 2029-30 term. In August, Newsom signed legislation requiring ethnic studies for California State University students. A 2016 law ordered the Board of Education to create a curriculum that would highlight the contributions of minorities in the development of California and the United States. 
And next from JTA, Sukkot, the pandemic, and a lynching come together in a multiracial Jewish dancer's new art installation by Josephine Dolston. For his latest installation, dancer and choreographer Adam McKinney drew inspiration from what may seem like disparate sources, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, the coronavirus pandemic, and the 1921 lynching of a black man in Texas. Shelter in place consists of a deconstructed sukkah, tree branches hanging from the ceiling, and elements making up the skach, a see-through material put on top of the sukkah at the floor. On white walls in the sukkah uh, are projected images of tintype photographs in which McKinney is posing as Fred Rouse, a black butcher who was lynched in Fort Worth and of whom no pictures have been located. A film of McKinney portraying Rouse is also projected, as well as a Thomas Edison film from 1897 of a young boy, a young black boy, dancing in front of a group of white men. The last element of the installation, titled Glorious Clouds, contains a hologram of McKinney performing a dance inspired by the clouds that God sent to guide the Israelites when they left Egypt. The various parts are connected in many ways that may not seem apparent at first glance. The hanging branches from the deconstructed sukkah are reminiscent of lynchings, where black and sometimes Jewish bodies could be found hanging from trees. The clouds for McKinney represent comfort and healing, which he views as necessary for dealing with long-standing racial trauma in the United States. And the idea of a sukkah as a dwelling place also takes on a new meaning during the pandemic, where most people are staying at home. My goal with Shelter in Place is not only to look at the effect of COVID-19 around isolation, around shelter and having to shelter in place, but it is also to explicitly look at the impact of anti-black racist violence and to respond as a black Jewish person, said McKinney, who serves as co-director and co-founder of the arts organization DNA Works and assistant professor of dance at Texas Christian University. The exhibit is part of a new project called Dwelling in a Time of Plagues that is finding ways for Jewish museums to display art even while they are closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. McKinney's work will be housed inside the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education in Portland starting Friday and viewable through its windows. The Jewish History Museum in Tucson is showing art by Buenos Aires-based multidisciplinary artist Myrta Kupfermink, and the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles is hosting an installation by Bay Area visual artist and filmmaker Tiffany Wolfe. Both installations will be shown outside the museums at the start of Sukkot. Photos and videos from all three installations also will be displayed in the ground floor windows of the 14th Street Y in New York. Projects such as Dwelling create new configurations of talent, and as we look at the constructions of the pandemic and the economy and safety, how will we use the creative assets of the Jewish community in new configurations, asked Melissa Martins Yeverbaum, Executive Director of the Council of American Jewish Museums, which collaborated on the project alongside Reboot, Asylum Arts, and Laba, a laboratory for Jewish culture. I think we've all been producing content for decades to serve the community and the public, and it's time to think about new ways of leveraging the voices, leveraging the talent, 
and to look at the opportunities, uh, to look at the holidays as an opportunity. A second round of the project, which is being funded by Canvas, an initiative of the Jewish Funders Network that seeks to elevate Jewish arts and culture, will see installations at Jewish museums during Passover. We've seen that the pandemic has had a profound impact on everyone, obviously, but the arts community has suffered in a very, very deep way economically, Canvas founder Lou Cove said. The creative Jewish economy is struggling, and we really wanted to find a way to help as many artists and creatives as we could in this moment, recognizing that they are helping us so much to weather this pandemic. Artists and creatives are the ones who are distracting us. They're helping us process the pandemic. They're making us laugh. All the works grapple with the reality of the pandemic along with a number of other pressing issues, including institutional racism and ageism, forced isolation, global warming, and the crisis for migrants and refugees. For McKinley, who worked on the installations with his theater director husband, Daniel Banks, the project provided a way to draw on the various parts of his identity in order to engage a diverse group of people. McKinley grew up in a Jewish family in Milwaukee, the son of a mother with roots in Eastern Europe and a father with African-American and Native American ancestry. I think it's a way for as many people to get connected to the work as possible, and it's also representative of my experience as a mixed-heritage Jew, he said. That it's not like I see the world in one way, it's that I see the world in many different dimensions. That my experience of the world is one that is black, and that is Jewish, and that is gay, and that is Native heritage. It also allowed McKinney to break barriers. He's the first Jew of color to show his art at the Oregon Jewish Museum. The opportunity to show the work of a Jew of color is particularly at this fraught moment where Portland is the center of the Black Lives Matter protest movement. It's actually quite an honor to be able to show his work and to see how a Jew, as a Jew of color, he navigates both Jewish tradition and his blackness, said the museum's director, Judy Marglis. Due to the pandemic, McKenney had to create the entire installation from his home in Texas. That meant many Zoom calls and sharing architectural drawings of the museum's layout so he could make sure the work fit the space. It's been a challenge, and we're up to that challenge, he said, and that's what we do as artists. And thinking about, is racism a challenge? Absolutely. Is anti-Semitism a challenge? Absolutely. And we still move in the direction of each other, and we still move in the direction of healing and we still remember so that we'll never forget. It's painful and hard and we keep doing it because we know that it makes a difference. And next from JTA, Nazi comparisons have long been off limits for American Jews. A new political ad suggests that's changing in the Trump era by Ron Campeas. Is it okay to compare Donald Trump to a Nazi? In line with their longtime opposition to such rhetoric, anti-Semitism watchdog groups are speaking out against the use of Nazi comparisons to attack Trump and his administration. But that bright line appears to be blurring for many, with the president stepping up his efforts to discredit the election results in November and refusing to promise a peaceful transfer of power should he lose to Joe Biden. The immediate flashpoint in the debate is a new 30-second ad released Tuesday by the Jewish Democratic Council of America that draws parallels between the rise of fascism in Germany 
and the Trump presidency. In swift and strong rebukes the anti-Semitism, watchdogs condemned the ad as offensive. One came from the Anti-Defamation League, which has been anything but shy in calling out a range of Trump's statements and actions. However, some endorsed the ad, notably the prominent Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt and the ADL's former longtime national director, Abraham Foxman, himself a Holocaust survivor. They expressed sympathy for such concerns about the state of America under Trump. On Tuesday night, the Jewish Democratic Council was playing up its ad connecting its ominous message to Trump's failure to condemn white supremacists in his first debate with Biden, the Democratic nominee. Instead, Trump appeared to instruct an extremist right-wing group, the Proud Boys, to stand back and stand by. The condemnations of the ad were part of the long-standing effort of Jewish groups to make Nazi and Holocaust comparisons, too. But a growing number of historians, activists, politicians, and journalists, many but not all of them liberals or Democrats, have taken up the line that Trump and his administration are deploying rhetoric and breaking norms in a manner similar to the Nazis as they rose to power and took control of Germany. The Jewish Democrats add contrast images from the rise of fascism in Europe in the 1930s with images from the nearly four years of the Trump presidency. They include neo-Nazi marchers in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, Trump speaking at a rally and the massacre of 11 Jews in the 2018 Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. A synagogue defaced with graffiti in the present day is presented alongside photos of graffiti Jewish shops in the 1930s. Titled, Hate Doesn't Stop Itself, It Must Be Stopped. The ad implies that Trump is responsible for the anti-Semitism of the far right. It comes days after Biden said Trump is sort of like Goebbels, referencing the Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. You say the lie long enough, keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, it becomes common knowledge, Biden said on MSNBC. The ADL did not directly weigh in on Biden's Goebbels comments, uh, comment, but it did issue a sharp condemnation of the Jewish Democratic Council's ad. This has no place in the presidential race and is deeply offensive to the memories of six million plus Jews systemically exterminated during the Shoah, tweeted Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL's CEO, using a Hebrew word for the Holocaust. The hate and extremism in this race is alarming and should be repudiated unambiguously. Elected leaders who engage in lying, scapegoating, and routinely call for violence should be condemned full stop. At the same time, we urge leaders and their surrogates to refrain from invoking the Holocaust in the context of the current election. It is not the same. Stay focused on the issues. The American Jewish Committee and Simon Wiesenthal Center also called for the ad to be taken down. The Jewish Democratic Council did not appear to be chastened by the condemnations from legacy groups. Its executive director, Hallie Seufer, seized on Trump's Proud Boys moment to reinforce the ad's message. Trump just refused to condemn white nationalism, she said on Twitter, reposting the ad. He called on Proud Boys and others featured in this ad to stand up and stand by. Trump, in fact, said stand back and stand by. Representative Ted Deutsch, a Florida Democrat who is a leader in the unofficial Jewish Congressional Caucus, said it was Trump who had pushed boundaries. 
Does the ad seem to push the boundaries? It does, he said Wednesday, but last night, Donald Trump once again obliterated the boundaries when he refused to condemn white supremacists. Swafer said in an interview that the ad is set to play on web platforms in swing states with substantial Jewish populations, including Florida, and a TV ad buy was being considered. In a text to the JTA, she noted the expressions of joy that Trump's standby call elicited from white supremacists on social media. The president's blatant refusal to condemn white supremacists, which has clearly incited the Proud Boys, underscores the importance of our message, she said. I hope those who are concerned by the president's words last night understand that the urgent warning in our ad that hate does not stop itself it must be stopped, is both accurate and timely. On Twitter, a rabbinic student named Talia Kaplan questioned the priorities of Jewish organizations that rushed to condemn the Jewish Democrats group. Jewish orgs, how, uh, now would be a great time to express as much outrage about standby as about Holocaust analogies, she said. In a sign of how disorienting the discourse has become, Greenblatt found himself condemning Trump on Twitter hours after he had condemned the Jewish Democratic Council for analogizing Trump's presidency to the rise of fascism. Trump owes America an apology or an explanation, the ADL leader said. On Wednesday, Trump told reporters that he had not heard of the Proud Boys, but added they need to stand down. The ADL and the Wiesenthal Center stood by their statements condemning the ad after Trump's Proud Boys episode on Tuesday, and the AJC had not answered a query by Wednesday afternoon. The Wiesenthal Center said it is extremely disappointed and troubled that President Trump did not explicitly denounce white supremacists. He needs to. The Jewish Democratic Council did not exactly come empty-handed to the debate over whether invoking Nazi comparisons was legitimate when talking about Trump. Lipstadt, the Holocaust historian, argued that in fact it was fine to compare 1930s Germany and what critics call Trump's breaking of norms. Lipstadt, who endorsed Barack Obama twice but has been tapped by administrations of both parties for her Holocaust-related expertise, also stressed that the ad made use of images of Nazi Germany, but not of the Holocaust itself. I would say in the attacks we're seeing on the press, the courts, academic institutions, elected officials, and even, most chillingly, the electoral process, that this deserves comparison, she said in a video conference hosted Tuesday by the Jewish Democratic Council. It's again showing how the public's hatred can be whipped up against Jews. Had the ad contained imagery of the Shoah, I wouldn't be here today. Likening a political opponent to Nazis has long been taboo, has long been a taboo that some leading Jewish institutions and organizations have sought to enforce. The Holocaust was unprecedented and unmatched since, in the breadth of its horror and its ambition, the total destruction of the Jews. Comparisons, the argument went, diminished the Holocaust and deprived its lessons of the potency to prevent its recurrence. Lipstadt has taken that stance in the past. When you take these terrible moments in our history and you use it for contemporary purposes in order to fill your political objectives, you mangle history, you trample on it, she told Haaretz in 2011. But in the current era, Lipstadt said the key to acceptable Holocaust comparisons is precision and nuance. Is it the Holocaust? No. 
But does the current era presage an authoritarian takeover? Maybe. People ask me, is this Kristallnacht? She said. Is this the beginning of programs, etc.? I don't think those comparisons are correct. However, I do think certain comparisons are fitting. It's certainly not 1938 when Nazis led the Kristallnacht pogroms throughout Germany. It's not even September 1935 when the Nuremberg Laws institutionalizing racist policies. What it well might be is December 1932. Hitler comes to power on January 30, 1933. It might be January 15, 1933. Foxman, the former ADL director, also said comparisons to Weimar Germany are apt. Even more than Lipstadt, Foxman has long spoken out against Nazi comparisons. Germany did have institutions, and they did have democracy, and it did fall apart, so yeah, it's not Germany, and it's not Nazism, but our antennas are quivering, Foxman told JTA. Seufer, the Jewish Democratic Council's leader, defended the ad's tone. We're not calling Donald Trump a Nazi, she said. We are warning against the ominous parallel of the rise of Nazism and the use of hatred for political purposes and the numerous signs that Donald Trump is doing the same. The Republican Jewish Coalition has condemned the ad and called on Biden to retract and apologize for his reference to Goebbels. The rule in debate is that if your only argument is to call your opponent a Nazi, you have no argument at all, RJC Executive Director Matt Brooks said in a statement. The calls from Brooks and others for apologies would likely go unheeded, which has been the norm on both sides when one calls out the other for Nazi analogies. In 2017, Trump likened probes into his campaign's alleged ties with Russia to living in Nazi Germany, with nary a Republican rebuke. Just this summer, in a Zoom meeting to rally its members, the RJC featured the right-wing radio host Mark Levin, who has called Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic House Speaker, a fascist, and Obamacare supporters, brown shirts. The Zionist Organization of America's President, Morton Klein, in a tweet Tuesday called the Jewish Democratic Council's ad disgraceful. In July, on the same social media platform, he had accused the liberal political donor George Soros, a Holocaust survivor, of helping Nazis find Jews, an extreme misrepresentation of one of Soros's experiences as a child. Brooks on Twitter called on Lipstadt to address the ad. Lipstadt directly replied in the Zoom call, saying Trump was emulating Goebbels and repeating a lie until his followers had internalized it. Goebbels was very successful at what he did, and I think the comparison by Vice President Biden was a very apt comparison because we're seeing a lot of this now, she said. Foxman said the intensification of hatred, including the rise of anti-Semitic tax and attacks on other minorities, did not have to rise to the level of Nazism to set off alarms. There is serious hate out there which is reminiscent of the hate that we lived through part of our history, he said. Jewish antennas quiver. It doesn't have to be Nazism to worry us that hate is out there and hate is not being challenged. And an update that just came in, Trump condemns Proud Boys, white supremacists in Fox News interview with Sean Hannity. And I'm recording this now Friday, October 2nd at 10.15 in the morning. 
President Trump under fire for not unequivocally condemning white supremacists, notably the Proud Boys, did so in a friendly venue chatting with Sean Hannity, the Fox News Channel host. I've said it many times, let me be clear again, I condemn the KKK, Trump said Thursday night, referring to the Ku Klux Klan, I condemn all white supremacists, I condemn the Proud Boys, referring to the extreme right quasi-militia that has had affiliations with anti-Semitism and white supremacists. The president said his condemnation would be ignored by the fake news media. Trump, in the first presidential debate on Tuesday night with Joe Biden, failed to condemn white supremacists when challenged by the moderator Chris Wallace. Pressed by Biden to denounce the Proud Boys, he told the group to stand back and stand by. The Proud Boys reveled in Trump's statement, which they took, not as condemnation, but as instructions from a leader. On multiple occasions during his campaign for the presidency and then while in office, Trump has appeared to encourage or absolve white supremacists only to condemn them under pressure. Trump's phone interview with Hannity came just hours before the president announced that he and his wife had tested positive for the coronavirus. And next from JTA, Detroit Jewish Community Center closes a major facility citing membership decline and COVID hardship by Danny Schwartz. A suburban Detroit JCC has closed its health club citing financial and other reasons all exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The Jewish Community Center of Metropolitan Detroit in West Bloomfield Township had suffered from overbuilt real estate over the past 20 years, CEO Brian Siegel said. The JCC has operated as the sub-landlord to the 340,000-square-foot building, with the real estate being owned by the United Jewish Foundation. An official vote was taken Tuesday morning, and both the executive committee and the board voted overwhelmingly in favor of the closing. Siegel would not provide specific numbers, but said that many at the JCC will lose their jobs, including many longtime employees who worked in the health club. The health club was not profitable even before the pandemic, with its membership declining by 50% in the past decade. The club was failing to bring in younger people. Young Jewish people today don't make a decision on where to work out based on where there are other Jews or not. Prior to the pandemic, the JCC was in a committee process with representatives of the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit and the United Jewish Foundation to try to solve its real estate problems. A plan was established to shrink the size of the JCC substantially, including reducing the size of the health club, Siegel said. But the pandemic accelerated plans rapidly, and the new committee formed with the Federation decided to close the health club. The club is expected to be demolished, leaving the remaining JCC with 140,000 square feet. The JCC is going to be a much more nimble, financially viable operation that no longer has to chase a building it can't afford, Siegel said. It's a historic moment, a heartbreaking moment, but a critical moment for the future of the JCC. In a joint statement, the incoming and outgoing presidents of the Federation and the United Jewish Foundation said they were aware of the move to close the health club, but that the JCC made the final decision on its Marilee Shapiro Asher, an acclaimed artist who survived both the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and COVID-19, has died. 
Asher died September 11th at her home in Washington, D.C., according to a statement from her family. She was 107. Asher made national headlines in May when news broke that she had survived COVID-19 despite doctors telling her family that she had mere hours to live. Asher wound up returning home after five days in the hospital. Her recovery came more than a century after she survived the Spanish flu, the 1918 pandemic that claimed more than 50 million lives worldwide. Born in Chicago in 1912, Asher began studying sculpture in 1936. She took up painting a few years after she moved to Washington, D.C. in 1943 with her first husband, Bernard Shapiro. Her first solo exhibition was held at American University in 1947. In 1993, she married Robert Asher, who died in 2008. Asher remained a working artist until she took ill from the coronavirus with a solo exhibition scheduled for May at a Washington gallery that was canceled due to the pandemic. In 2015, she published a memoir, Dancing in the Wonder, for 102 years. Asher was survived by a daughter, Joan of Washington, and a son, Harvey of Florida. The family requests donations be made to Capital Caring Health Hospice of Washington, D.C., or the Elie Wiesel Foundation for Humanity. Jewish students and their supporters have called on school officials in Northern California's Marin County to take action against anti-Semitism at a local high school. More than 5,600 people have signed the Change.org petition addressed to the Tamalpais Union High School District and its superintendent, Tara Talpier. Last month, an Instagram account associated with the Redwood High School in the city of Larkspur, 13 miles north of San Francisco, called on followers to identify Jewish high school students in Marin County, identified the student running the Instagram account, and provided the information to local law enforcement. The account was removed. Our safety is threatened by the list and the pictures posted by the student, reads the petition signed by Redwood students, the list of Jewish students paired with the image of the swastika and the bullet produces an uncanny resemblance to the use of lists during the Nazi regime. The idea of going back to school with a student whose beliefs align with those of Nazis is inconceivable. We believe the action taken thus far by the administration has done nothing to make us feel secure and safe. This student has got away, gotten away with offensive behavior for far too long and this recent escalation is a direct result of the lack of attention given by the district. The action so far, according to the petition, was an email from the district that focused too much on the history of anti-Semitism and the actions of the community rather than the action plan of the district. Israel delivered the first of two Iron Dome missile defense system batteries to the United States Army. The U.S. and Israel signed an agreement for the purchase of two batteries a year ago from its developer, the Haifa-based firm Rafael Advanced Defense Systems Limited. The batteries will be employed in the defense of U.S. troops against ballistic and aerial threats, Israel's defense ministry said Wednesday in a statement. On Wednesday, Defense Minister Benny Gantz visited Rafael's Lashem Institute for an event marking the delivery of the first Iron Dome missile to the United States. 
In March, the Army canceled plans to purchase more of the batteries because of difficulties integrating them into its existing air defense systems. Congress has given Israel more than $1.5 billion to produce Iron Dome batteries. In 2014, the U.S. and Israel signed a co-production agreement that would allow parts of the Iron Dome system to be produced in the United States. Since it was deployed in 2011, Iron Dome has intercepted more than 2,400 rockets fired at Israel from Gaza. Along with Iron Dome, Israel employs several other defense systems, including David's Sling, Arrow 2, and Arrow 3. And next from JTA, Columbia University students passed college's first ever Israel boycott referendum by Hannah Dreyfus. Students at Columbia University have passed a first-ever referendum to boycott and divest from companies that profit from or engage in the state of Israel's acts toward Palestinians. The news was released to the Columbia student body via email Tuesday morning, the day after the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. According to the vote, results shared with the Jewish Week, 61% of undergraduates who weighed in, 1,081 votes, voted in favor of the referendum, 27%, 485 votes voted against it, and 11%, 205 votes abstained. The referendum does not affect the university's investments. Columbia University President Lee Bollinger released a statement Tuesday morning emphasizing that the university should not change its investment policies on the basis of particular views about a complex policy issue especially when there is no consensus across the university community about that issue. Bullinger, who earlier this year published a statement tying the movement to boycott Israel to the current rise in anti-Semitism, clarified that questions about possible divestment of endowment funds are not decided by referendum, but rather through a process involving the university's advisory committee. Still, the student leader of an Israel advocacy group said the vote, which represents the first time the Columbia College Student Council passed the referendum and brought the vote to the student body, represents a symbolic loss. After everything that was done to pass this referendum, the president immediately came out with a statement that the university has zero plans to divest, said Romy Ronan, a junior in the Joint Degree Program of the Jewish Theological Seminary in Columbia University and the Vice President of Students Support Israel on campus. Ronan, 20, was not allowed to participate in the vote because she is not officially an undergraduate at Columbia. Students of Barnard College, the women's college that operates in partnership with Columbia, were similarly not allowed to participate in the vote. Still, what the vote has accomplished is making the majority of pro-Israel students on campus feel unsafe, victimized, and disappointed, said Ronan. It makes it feel normalized to boycott and divest from the only Jewish state, a place a lot of us call home. Members of Columbia University Apartheid Divest, a collaborative student group that includes Columbia Students for Peace in Palestine, and Columbia Barnard Jewish Voices for Peace did not respond to a request for comment. The group posted an announcement with the voting results on its Facebook page Tuesday morning shortly after the results were released. We are so excited to announce that our divestment referendum has passed with majority student support at Columbia College. Thank you for your support and for voting. We couldn't have done it without you. Full statement coming soon, reads the post. 
The referendum follows several previous attempts by Palestinian groups on campus to bring a BDS vote to the student body. An advertisement encouraging Columbia students to vote no to the BDS referendum ran September 20th in the Columbia Daily Spectator a week before the vote. The advertisement, sponsored by Students Support Israel, said vote no to hate, vote no to keep Jewish students safe on campus. Hours after publication, the Daily Spectator published an apology for running the advertisement. The apology was signed by the publication's editor-in-chief, Karen Zia, managing editor Shubham Saharan, and vice president Isabel Jaregui. The message, which referenced the Columbia University apartheid divest referendum, was clearly inappropriate and did not meet our standards for distribution, the statement said. We deeply apologize for giving this advertisement space on our platform and are immediately reviewing our internal processes to ensure that publication of such material will never happen again. Neither the Columbia Spectator nor Spectator Publishing Company endorses students supporting Israel and Columbia for its products, services, or views. The referendum vote follows a federal complaint filed in December 2019 against Columbia University accusing the school of anti-Semitic discrimination. The case was first filed uh, was the first filed since President Donald Trump's executive order on combating anti-Semitism which grants Jewish students the same protections as other minority groups. In the complaint, student Jonathan Carton alleges pervasive and ongoing discrimination against Jewish students by other students and faculty at the school. It asks the U.S. Education Department to investigate and consider pulling all federal funding from the university. The university's director of media relations, Caroline Edelman, previously said the school had no comment at this time on the suit. And next from JTA, Russian authorities stage rabbi's death to nab alleged terrorists who reportedly wanted him dead. By Kanan Lipschitz, authorities in Russia staged the death of a rabbi as part of a sting operation that ended with the arrest of two alleged terrorists who are said to have ordered to have him killed. The operation has been ongoing since last year, the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs revealed last week the ministry neither named the suspects, who were identified only as being 60 and 70, nor indicated when they had been arrested. The suspects are leaders of an extremist group known as Citizens of the USSR, which does not recognize the dissolution of the Soviet Union, according to the ministry. Last year, members of that movement began targeting and threatening the Jewish community of Krasnodar, a city in southern Russia, the ministry said. Murder was among the threats. An undercover counterterrorism agent approached the suspects and offered to kill Rabbi Aryeh Leib Tkach, chairman of the Jewish community of Krasnodar, if they accepted him into their ranks as a senior member. The suspects agreed, and a police makeup artist worked with Takach on a photo shoot in which his death was staged. The agent presented the photos to the suspects as proof he had done their bidding. They were arrested after giving the agent certificates accepting him into their ranks as a field commander, the ministry's report said. Under communism, open religious worship, especially by Jews, was largely prohibited. 
The collapse of communism led to a revival of Jewish life in Russia with support from the government of President Vladimir Putin. And next from JTA, an opinion piece by Menachem Z. Rosensaft. 75 years ago, my parents and other Holocaust survivors celebrated Sukkot on their own terms. The festival of Sukkot, which begins five days after Yom Kippur, is traditionally referred to as the time of our rejoicing. It is an upbeat, celebratory, week-long holiday during which we are commanded to eat and ideally sleep in a temporary dwelling to remind us that the children of Israel lived in booths during their desert sojourn after God had taken them out of Egypt. Seventy-five years ago, for the first time since their liberation from Nazi death and concentration camps, the survivors of the Shoah, the Holocaust, sat down together to reflect on their only recently acquired freedom from their nightmarish bondage. At the end of March and early April of 1945, during Passover, most had still been inmates of Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, Dachau, and other camps, and unable to properly celebrate the holiday. The first festival after the end of World War II in Europe on May 18, 1945, was Shavuot, the anniversary of God giving the Torah to the Jewish people at Sinai. But the Holocaust had not yet come to an end. In Bergen-Belsen alone, hundreds were still dying daily of typhus, extreme malnutrition, and other vestiges of the horrors they had experienced. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of 1945 were similarly still cloaked in solemnity and sorrow, simultaneously enabling and forcing the survivors to contemplate the enormity of the devastation they had suffered, and they had to come to grips with the prospects of a daunting future. As my mother, who had emerged from the infernos of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, would recall three decades later at a conference of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, there was no ecstasy, no joy at our liberation. We had lost our families, our homes. We had no place to go, nobody to hug. Nobody was waiting for us anywhere. We had been liberated from death and the fear of death, but not from the fear of life. In contrast, Sukkot provided the survivors with a unique respite. In displaced persons camps throughout Germany, Austria, and Italy, they sat down together, merging traditional prayers and melodies with their individual memories. There was no need to explain themselves to anyone. Everyone there had shared the same experiences in one form or another. My mother never spoke to me about that first post-Holocaust Sukkot, perhaps because the memories of her murdered parents, first husband, five-and-a-half-year-old son, and siblings were still too raw at that time for her as her family's sole survivor to rejoice. She did, however, mark the first day of the festival, September 22, 1945. It was her second day on the stand testifying at the trial of the SS men and women who had committed unspeakable brutalities at Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. Indeed, the DP camps themselves were themselves temporary sanctuaries, that is to say, Sukkot, the Hebrew term for boots or shelters, 
in which the survivors were able to return to life on their own terms. For many of them, that Sukkot would be the first of several, for some as many as five such festivals spent in the uncertainty of the DP camps. Prevented from immigrating to mandatory Palestine by restrictive British policies and from settling elsewhere by the draconian immigration laws of the United States, Canada, Australia, and other Western countries, the Jewish DPs, much like the children of Israel in the desert, were forced to adapt to temporary conditions over which they had no control. Their solution was ingenious. Largely left to their own devices, they recreated as best they could the atmospherics of their destroyed homes and communities. They spoke Yiddish with one another. They established Jewish schools and other educational institutions and published Yiddish newspapers. They identified nationally as Jews and engaged in Zionist politics, often to the extreme displeasure of their liberators who would have liked them to simply return quietly to their countries of origin. While many, if not most, of this surviving remnant, as they called themselves, were not conscious of it at the time, the Sukkot of 1945 in DP camps such as Bergen-Belsen, Ladsberg, Feldefing, and Forenwald was the harbinger of good things to come. It wasn't that the survivors, including my own parents, were rejoicing. Their physical and emotional wounds were far too open, far too raw for that but perhaps they were able to contemplate a future in which rejoicing and happiness might be possible. By Sukkot of that year, marriages were taking place in the D camps, and the survivors had begun creating new families against the backdrop of murdered parents, spouses, siblings, and children. And so as we sit socially distant in our Sukkot in 2010, with our celebration tempered by the exigencies of the COVID-19 pandemic, let us remember that Sukkot in the DP camp 75 years ago and the far more devastating conditions that forced the survivors of the Holocaust to face the future largely on their own, but also on their own terms. Menachem Rosensaft is Associate Executive Vice President and General Counsel of the World Jewish Congress. He teaches about the law of genocide at the law schools of Columbia and Cornell University. And another opinion piece, the American Jewish story needs to include more non-Ashkenazi Jews like me by Leila Rudy. When I was in first grade during my first few weeks of yeshiva in New Jersey, my teacher asked the class what we knew about Shabbat. I kept quiet, but my classmates had plenty of answers. We can't cut paper with scissors, one said. I'm not allowed to use glue, a classmate behind me pointed out. Another student raised their hand and gleefully shouted, Kibi and Lach Magine. Our teacher laughed and responded, Yes, we do eat Kibi and Lach Magine on Shabbat. That's my favorite part. That was the moment I realized my fellow classmates, my teachers, my community were just like me. They ate Kibi, Lach Magine, Sambusak, Ka'ak, and every other food I thought would be considered weird or different. I was in that moment. Uh, in that moment, I realized the stark difference from the stories I heard from my mother about her own upbringing. My entire paternal family came from the Syrian city of Aleppo in the early 20th century. My maternal grandfather was born in Damascus, my grandmother in Istanbul. 
They married in Lebanon, had two children, and escaped in 1967 when it became untenable for Jews to live there. My mother is the first in her family to be born in North America. She was raised in Montreal and attended a Jewish day school with mostly Ashkenazi children. My mother and I were in our backyard a few years ago when I was imparting my thoughts on being raised in our Syrian community surrounded by people who shared our background, values, and traditions. I told her about my experience in first grade and the small, stunning revelation of my community. Sitting on lounge chairs under the sun, my mother relayed this story I've heard since I was a child. My great-grandmother Layla baking pita bread, then spreading labna and mint with a drizzle of olive oil and rolling it up for my mother to eat for lunch. And my mother, nearly the same age I was when I heard Kiba and Lachmagine, taking the rolled-up pita out of her bag at lunchtime and attempting to eat it only to be surrounded by questioning classmates. What is that? they asked my mother. She told them about her pita sandwich with labana and mint, a sandwich her grandmother made for her, a sandwich my grandmother still makes for me. Arab, she's an Arab, they taunted her, faces twisted in disgust. I have heard this story since I was young. Nearly every time my mother or grandmother prepares me a pita sandwich with labana and mint, and tomatoes and olives. But this was the first time my mother told me the actual taunts thrown her way, the manner in which they spit out the word Arab. I've never met that level of blatant hostility, but now venturing out of my community and onto a university campus in Brooklyn and now Montreal, I do encounter confusion and questioning when I tell classmates that I'm a Syrian Jew. I'm often met with, there are Jews in Syria, to which I respond, well, not anymore. As I proceed further out of my community into the real world, I realize my Jewish identity is a puzzle to nearly everyone I meet. I didn't understand it at first. How could people not know about Jews, about where we come from in our histories, how we ended up where we are today? Learning more about my Jewish history as well as the histories and heritages of our vast community has made me realize that the lenses through which the world views Jewish people is very much centered on Ashkenazi, and even then, people aren't aware of or nor fully educated on the multifaceted history of Ashkenazi Jews either. Mizrahim, Jews who were exiled to Middle Eastern countries, Sephardim, Jews who were exiled to Spain, and other subdivisions within our larger community are too often ignored by Ashkenazi Jews and the institutional Jewish world. The dangerous connotations and rhetoric that comes along with our erasure within and outside of Jewish communities is more than just a matter of they don't know about us. With our existence being barely an afterthought, the mainstream idea of Jewish people, what we look like, our traditions, our historical backgrounds, is inherently warped. The conversation on Judaism and Jewish history, as well as the modern Jewish experience, has largely been uh, led by and centered on Ashkenazim. That conversation is an important one. There are people who deny the Holocaust and those who subscribe to the preposterous notion that Ashkenazim are not real Jews because they don't know the expansive, complicated history of Jewish people in Europe. But a conversation created on and led by Ashkenazim, while Mizrahi, Sephardi, and numerous subdivisions are overlooked, leaves us ignored by the rest of the world, too. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.